of all days, this is not a quiet day. The angels are singing. Morgues are quiet and well organized. The saints ought to be alive and active. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. We're so glad you're here today with us. And if you're here for the first time, uh, especially on the break, we'd love to meet you and uh, welcome you to Valley Bible, a wonderful group of people. Been in this community now in our 44th year, trying to tell people Christ is alive. Christ is alive. I want to give you a uh, uh, summary. If this message that I say today is not true, uh, just burn up all church history books, forget everything you've been told a fool's lie, and abandon everything that calls itself church. If it is true, uh, you need to put faith in Christ as soon as you can. Uh, I'm going to read uh, two verses. If someone asks you what is the gospel, don't say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four gospels, the biographical sketches of Christ. But listen to what Paul, in the briefest way, describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which means good news. I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, unless you didn't really believe the gospel, you just, I believe, whatever. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. It's not enough that he died. Everybody has died, and we're going to die. But why did he die? We usually die for our sins, the penalty. He died being a perfect man for the sins of others. So he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. If Barbara Walters was around, she could have interviewed them. Though some have fallen asleep or have died. That's the briefest description. For 40 days after his resurrection, he let people touch him, eat with him, listen to his uh, talks. For 40 days, they touched the body. They knew he was alive. 40 days, they got to see him. Now, Romans. Let me show you something in Romans that's quite interesting. Romans opens by saying, let me give you the gospel, and it never mentions the resurrection of Christ. Why? I wonder why. Let's look at it. Romans 1 Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The same gospel, Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose again. You're not ashamed of it? Look, why did you, what is it? And he, this time he just describes, let me tell you what it does. He's not going to describe to you exactly what it is. Listen, for it is the gospel, God's power, 
for salvation, which is a big term, nice term, to deliver us from the consequences of sin. That's all salvation is, delivering us from the consequences of our sins. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, if you're reading this in the Vulgate, the Latin, you'd say the justice of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith. Now, that's the theme of the book. And yet, when Martin Luther read this, as an Augustinian monk, he said this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, or the righteousness of God. Justice is the Latin word for the Greek word righteousness. So just righteous. So just keep that in. You hear the word justification, it simply means to be declared righteous. They're used interchangeably. So he says, nothing stood in my way but this verse, the justice of God. In the gospel is revealed the justice of God, the righteousness of God. And this Augustinian monk who fasted twice a week, slept on plywood, was devout, gave up all earthly pursuits, all earthly riches, to be a devoted monk, was a brilliant mind. And he said, when he came to this verse, he said, I read it and I hated it. I did not love a just and an angry God. I did not love a God that told me I had to do something to be just when I knew I never could. I was too aware of my sinfulness, of my own vileness, and here he's in a, a monastery. Uh, he's not running a casino, friend. He's not working Las Vegas. He's in a monastery. Devoted his life to ministry. And yet I know when I read this verse, how can I ever get good enough to be just in the sight of God? It haunted him. It scared him, and he began to read about a man by the name of Augustine, a great Catholic theologian in the 4th century, who said, this is not talking about a justice or righteousness we achieve, but a righteousness offered to us in the gospel that is a free gift. He's not saying, here's another ladder for you to climb, a religious ladder, if you can climb this, you'll get a, a passing grade with God. No, it's God saying, no, I've come to the bottom of the ladder, and I want to offer you a A-plus in righteousness. But it won't be your righteousness. It's the one I'm going to give you in the gospel. So here's the dilemma. And Christianity must deal with it. You must deal with it. Every religion's got to deal with this question. If I'm guilty before God because I am a sinner, and he's going to list in chapter 1 just 31 sins that we do, and there's a whole lot he didn't mention. 
If we are sinners, and all are, including me, that's why I'm the pastor. I'm the chief of sinners around here. If we are guilty, how has God proposed a solution for guilty people to ever be right in his sight? How can I be guilty and at the same time be right? And world religion says you do penance, uh, you give money, uh, you flagellate the body, uh, you inflict pain, you some way try to atone, uh, do good works, be a nice person, uh, and all, every human, be a philanthropist, do, do all this stuff because it impresses God that we're good enough to earn his righteous standing. And God says, your best in my sight, I consider like filthy rags. Because I'm absolutely perfect, and I don't grade on the curve. I don't grade on the curve. There's the standard, and all are falling short. All are falling short. Often compared this to, if I met you at Pier 9 or Pier 39, I said, let's have a contest. Let's jump towards Alcatraz. You could, you could out jump me by 20 yards, honey, but you're still going to land in the bay. <laughs> and you might be a nicer person than me, and you may do more good works than me, and you may give more money than me, and you may have been baptized more than me, and you may have been this more than me, but you'll still fall short of the perfect standard of God's righteousness. You can't win it. We, we just fall short. We fall short. So, Paul, what's so great about this gospel you're not ashamed of? You've told me God offers a righteousness in it. Then you say in verse 18, God's wrath is presently being revealed from heaven against the human race. Well, wait, wait. Don't you know that we're perfect? No, you're not. If you just record how many men were killed in the 20th century, Stalin can kill 50 million of his own people in Russia. You're saying, we're good? How many were killed in China under communism? Friend, this is a dangerous race. It's a scary race. I grew up where you didn't have security systems. We never locked up the doors. There's nothing worth stealing. Everybody's getting the security. Why? Because your neighbor's safe? No, because they're dangerous. Everything's scary. It's a scary culture. We're trying to protect our... I used to hang out at rec centers in Richmond. I used to play basketball and used to go to games there. All on the south side of Richmond. No, 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 no. Uh, we just keep our kids locked in the house and play video games. Don't go to a rec center. You'll be wrecked. But he said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men. And he begins to tell us our problem. First of all, man has said, we don't want the true and living God telling us what to do. And we kicked him out. But when we kicked him out, we kicked ourselves out. We lost paradise because we wanted to be our own God. Then he said, we chose to worship other things other than God. Can you imagine worshiping a snake 
more than the living God. He said, this is what we did. We chose idols made of wood, silver, and gold, but we rejected the creator. Then he said, I want to let you see how bad you can get. I want to give you up. Do everything you've always wanted to do. And he said, when he gave us up, we began to do it. We became full of unrighteousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though we knew of God's commands, we said, we don't want to do them. We don't need God telling us what to do. He said, that's your problem. You're guilty. You're rebels to the core. Then he goes in chapter 2. He said, world religion, including Judaism, has not been able to solve the problem of man. That even though you know all the moral teaching, though you know great teaching even from Moses down, you don't do it. That's why you've got to be a good hypocrite to be a good religionist. You just can't pull it off, and you still got to look good. Why don't you start out by saying, I'm a big sinner that God is saving. Well, I don't want to go to a church where there's sinners. Why, you couldn't come then. We're all sinners. I hope you don't lose your wallet today. I think we try to fake it a little bit during this hour. We're not as bad as we could be. But we all fall short. Religion alone can never get you high enough on the, on the ladder to give you God says, you're right with me. He's seen as all this effort, all these rituals, all these slain animals under Judaism and the Old Testament, you're still not right with me. And then he says in chapter 3, he summarizes, I find you guilty. None of you are righteous. No one understands. You've all turned aside. Your mouths are full of venom. Your feet are are, are just quick to shed blood. You're full of misery. And then he says, by the law, by my righteous standards, none of you can ever be right in my sight. For I gave my righteous legislation to zip up your mouth and quit saying you're right. You've broken them. You've broken them. Adultery, murder, killing, lying, stealing, lusting, coveting. You're guilty. That's only 10 of them. There were 613 of them. You cannot ever stand right before God based upon religion, your own human efforts, anything you could ever do. And then all of a sudden, he begins to unpackage the good news. The good news goes this way in Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God has been made manifest that's not dependent on the law, nor the prophets. This righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Number one, you can only be right with God if you put faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ does more for you than all law-keeping, all church rules. Simply say, I put my trust in that man, the man on the tree. Faith saves, not works. He goes on to say, this righteousness comes to all who believe. 
For all have sinned and they're falling short of God's glory. And you can be declared right by his grace as a gift. God wants to give you a right standing with him as a gift, not as a reward of all your hard efforts and all your strenuous efforts. He wants to give it to you as a free gift. Can you believe that? What you can never earn if you inflicted pain on yourself every day for a thousand years, it would not atone for your sin. And Jesus said, the Father's offering you a free gift. I've paid the price for you to be right with God. Just receive me, and you've got God's righteousness. Well, what did you do, Jesus? Why should I receive you? Well, you see, I paid a ransom price to buy you out from the bondage of sin, and it cost me my life. And get this, the wrath that God has towards the race has been quenched in me. I have propitiated a beautiful word that says, I have satisfied all the just outrage of God towards your sin. Everything I've ever done against God was paid for in the person of Christ, and God took the sword of his justice, and he plunged it in his son, and he said, I'm satisfied. The debt's been paid. The debt's been paid. That's our gospel. So we can tell a thief on a cross, what are you ever going to do? For, who do you think you are to think you can go to paradise? What have you ever done? You're on the cross because you killed somebody. You're a Roman criminal. You're a bad dude. Well, you don't wind up on a cross by the Romans unless you've been a bad, bad dude. And you're going to say, this is the Son of God. He's not here because he's guilty. I believe you're the Son of God. Matter of fact, you're the only one that can get me to heaven. When you get there, would you remember me? This day you'll be with me in paradise. All he did is he looked to Christ and believed. That's all he did. And one day, he got a free ticket to paradise. One day, just by putting faith in Christ. Now, this is Paul's gospel. And he winds up in chapter 4, and he says, uh, this, this righteousness comes as God puts the righteousness of Christ to your credit. That when you believe in Christ, God does something. He gives you a righteousness foreign to you. It's not yours. It, it's not your good works. And he takes and he puts to your credit the righteousness of Christ. And he uses a word reckon, count it righteous, some nine to 11 times in chapter 4. Believe in Christ and God will put to your credit the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That gets you into heaven. It's not your righteousness. A famous writer by the name of John Bunyan, he was put in Bedford jail and walked out with a book called Pilgrim's Progress that used to be the second most widely read book in the English language, Pilgrim's Progress. And he said that when God was dealing with his heart, wasn't a believer yet, but he was being exposed to the gospel and he was aware of his sinfulness and aware that he was not ready to meet God. 
He said one day he was out in a field, I believe it was a wheat field, and he said the overwhelming nature of his sin and the enslavement to him overwhelmed him, and he's saying, well, how could I ever be right before a holy God? How can this God ever let me in? And all of a sudden, he said, the words of another great sinner echoed through his soul, and he began to quote to himself, and be found in him having a righteousness not my own, a righteousness that comes by law-keeping, but I'll be found to have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone saves. But you know what's interesting? We've never mentioned anything about the resurrection. I thought this was resurrection Sunday. What are we talking about being right with God? Well, I was hoping you'd ask that. Uh, look at Romans 4.22, describing the faith of Abraham that God gave him a righteous standing, even though he's an ungodly idol worshiper, moon worshiper. And he said, this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. They were written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, all of our offenses, all of our crimes, all of our sins, every filthy, rotten, whatever we've ever done, and the things we wanted to do but we were afraid we'd get caught, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What? What does his resurrection have to do with me being right? Justification means to be right with God. Why did you save the resurrection till now? He said, I've been telling you for chapter after chapter you can be right with God by believing Jesus Christ, believing what he did. And I told you in chapter 3, he died. He atoned for sin. He covered your crimes. I've told you, I've told you, I've told you. And now you come up and say, oh, God raised Christ from the dead for your justification. What does that have to do with it? It would be translated this way. He was delivered up on account of our sin. He died for our sins, was buried. He was raised, and the idea, he was raised in order to secure our righteous standing with God because a dead Christ cannot save you. I've often said the world's greatest dead lifeguard cannot save you. I took my swim lessons at the Richmond Pludge. That's why I don't know how. With all the other kids in the project. But I can often imagine having a statue. This was the world's greatest lifeguard who just died six months ago. And all of a sudden, I'm drowning today. 
Just look to the statute as you're going down. As I sink to the bottom. If Christ is still on the cross, you're still in your sin. And Paul said that. Our preaching is empty and void, and you cannot go to heaven. It takes a living Christ to save someone like you and I. And he's alive. And he says the resurrection is God's guarantee that what was done on the cross is authentic. It's like this. God wrote the check for your sins on Friday. It cleared the bank on Sunday. The funds are there. He can do everything he said he can do on Friday, and his living resurrection says it on Sunday. So today, I'm right with God on the basis and work of a living Christ who died for me. As long as I'm in jail, the bond hasn't been accepted. But when I get out of prison, I know the fine's been paid. And we're here today to celebrate not only a crucified Christ, but a living Christ. And God raised him to tell everyone, guess what? Mohammed, you died. Buddha, you died. World religious leaders, you died. You died. You died. A million could have died for a good cause. Only one in the history said, I'm alive. I died, I'm alive, I'm alive. That is our salvation. My righteousness rests on it. If he's dead, you're going to a Christless eternity. His resurrection was God's amen to his words on the cross. It is finished, and the empty tomb, God said, amen.